It feels weird to say this because there is so much to be worried about in the world right now, but I actually had a pretty good week. I got a phone call from a friend that I haven't talked to in like a year. I made plans with my mom to see her around Mother's Day. I discovered this new video game that I am totally obsessed with. And it turns out that some other people had a good week too. And there it is. There's your critical call. James Webb not only has legs, but it has power. As it uh, begins. NASA finally got a new telescope into place orbiting the sun. And this telescope is going to offer all these new insights into the distant past of our universe. So that was a pretty big win. There was also a big win on Jeopardy. A librarian from Chicago with the most adorable, nerdy yellow glasses won against Amy Schneider, who may have lost this game, but now holds the record for the second most consecutive wins on Jeopardy of all time. Amy Schneider, congratulations. What a run. Thank you for the two months you spent with us. It was very special. It was remarkable. We'll be seeing you again in the tournament. And for many people around the country... Their phones are now working faster with new access to 5G. You know, it's not going to change everyone's life right away, but some people do get really excited about this kind of thing. Oh my god, can I can I go can I go for like 45 minutes about Deutsche Telekom and T-Mobile and voice stream and how all that happened? No, no one no one wants that. No one needs that. With all the difficult, troubling news from the end of 2021 and the beginning of this year, we wanted to share with you a few stories about good things that have happened recently, with the hopes that they'll remind you that even in this very uncertain moment, there is still a lot to be excited about. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, January 28th. Today, we're talking about these big wins— the Webb Telescope, Jeopardy! champion Amy Schneider, and why it matters that more people will have access to 5G. The launch got postponed for days and days until finally NASA decided to launch it early on Christmas morning. That's reporter Joel Achenbach. Like so many scientists and space lovers around the world, Joel has been closely watching the progress of the James Webb Telescope since it launched last month. And he observed that launch from an operations center in Baltimore. And he told our producer Emma Talkoff about it. T-minus 30 seconds and counting. People were nervous. I mean, they could barely breathe, some of them, because here is this incredibly important, very expensive telescope that is decades in the making. And it's sitting folded up inside the cone of a rocket down in French Guiana, about to get blasted into space. Not only does the telescope have to not blow up, but it has to go to the right place. You know, the, the rocket has to send it on the right trajectory. Standing by for terminal count. I mean, it's not a minor thing to put a very expensive telescope on top of a rocket and hope that everything goes right. And it did, and there was a great deal of, of joy and excitement. And liftoff. 
and the whole building kind of rumbled when the word came that the solar arrays had properly deployed and that the telescope had power. Because if the solar arrays don't work, then it's just a, a giant paperweight out in outer space. James Webb begins a voyage back to the birth of the universe. And it's been many, many weeks of deployments and you know checking to see if everything is working. And, and so far, yeah, the Webb looks pretty amazing. And it looks like the engineers did a spectacular job in putting out in space a million miles from Earth a instrument, a scientific instrument that will enable us to see the universe in a different way. So, Joel, can you just tell me where is the James Webb telescope right now? Right now, the telescope is about a million miles from Earth. As the Earth is going around the sun, so is the telescope. And it's in a special orbit at Lagrange Point 2, which is a spot, it's farther from the sun than we are. But it, because it's a gravitationally stable spot, it'll always kind of shadow the Earth. It'll always go around the sun at the same rate as the Earth. And so it's always about a million miles away. And what has the journey been like to get it there? Like, what hurdles has this telescope have to overcome to get to that point? This mission has just been so nerve-wracking from the beginning because they had to launch the telescope all folded up inside the cone of this big rocket. The rocket throws it out into outer space, and the telescope has to unfold itself. It has to deploy these solar arrays. And then this massive sun shield, it's the size of a tennis court, which is designed to block the sunlight and keep the telescope cold. And that's never been done before. I mean, this is this sort of flexible material, five layers of it that has to expand out and create essentially a giant umbrella. And then it has to open up the mirrors. There's 18 separate hexagonal gold-plated mirrors that have to open up. Mm. And a secondary mirror has to be extended to capture the light from those first 18 mirrors. It's all very complicated, but it's gone splendidly well, according to NASA. Why are scientists excited about this telescope, and what are they hoping it's going to help them figure out? Every time you create a new telescope with a new set of of capabilities, you discover not only things you want to find, but there are surprises. What we know or what we suspect is that this telescope will be able to see deeper into the past, into the really early, early phases of the universe, maybe just a couple of hundred million years after the Big Bang, when the first stars and the first galaxies were forming. And that light has been extremely redshifted deep into the infrared portion of the spectrum as space itself has expanded over the last 13.8 billion years. So this looks back to about 13.6 billion years ago, roughly. And that's one of the big goals, is to see deeper into the past and, and, and back into the very early universe. But it will also be able to look at things closer to home in closer to us in time, the evolution of galaxies, and even things in our own solar system, including, you know, some of the ice giant planets on the outer part of our solar system and in these Kuiper Belt objects. Pluto is the most famous of them, but these icy worlds that are out there beyond Neptune, it'll be able to look at that and maybe even look at 
really intriguing things like these moons, Enceladus and Europa, that are spewing some kind of liquid from what appears to be subsurface oceans, and that will be of astrobiological interest, i.e., you know, is it possible there's something living beneath the surfaces of those moons? It's going to help us answer the big questions about where we came from, what else is there, and are we alone? This is NASA astrophysicist Tom Green, who has been working on the Webb telescope for close to 25 years. By looking in the infrared, it'll be able to see molecules around uh, young stars that are still forming. So we'll know what building blocks important for life were incorporated into their early solar systems. We'll also be able to see atmospheres of planets around other stars. We'll observe hundreds of them, and we'll be able to see carbon-based molecules that are important for life and also indicate chemistry and just uh, the overall compositions of these atmospheres that we do not know now. Wow. I find it kind of mind-boggling that not only is this telescope so far away that it's almost like difficult to conceptualize, but it's also looking essentially far into the past. That's kind of wild. The fact that the fact that telescopes look into the past is I find it hard to get my brain around it, and this is what I do for a living. So I don't blame <laughs> people who go, well, how is that possible that you can look back to near the beginning of time? I think people understand that when they look at a star that's out there, like Betelgeuse, mm-hmm. it's, what, 500 light years away. So they can grasp that it's taken 500 years for the light to reach us. It is a little hard to grasp how could we see billions of years into the past. But that is, you know, what the Hubble has done. They pointed it at an empty patch of space and did this thing called the ultra-deep field, where they looked at just this tiny little you know, pinprick of a spot in what seemed to be empty space and held it there for a couple of weeks, collecting whatever light was coming from that patch of sky. And they saw just thousands and thousands of galaxies, many of them strangely shaped from early in the universe's history. So yes, telescopes are time machines, and we're looking back into the past, and we're seeing the evolution of the universe. And the James Webb Space Telescope is, that's one of the main goals, is to understand how the universe came to be the way it is today in our local neighborhood. That's so cool. Um, You've touched on this, but I think a lot of listeners are maybe familiar with something like the Hubble telescope. Can you just explain like how this telescope is different from that in terms of how it works and what it can do? Well, it's different in a couple of key ways. Number one is that the Hubble is mostly an optical telescope, which means it looks at the universe in the same wavelengths that we do. It sees things in, quote, visible light, whereas the web is mostly an infrared telescope is picking up light that's coming, you know, at different wavelengths. And so whenever you do that, you get a different view, different eyes on on the universe. The other really big difference from a practical engineering standpoint is that the Hubble is orbiting the Earth. It's only, what, 360 miles above the surface, Hmm. roughly. You can go visit it, which in fact, astronauts have done five times, including when they fixed it after they had an aberration early on. So you can fix the Hubble. You can slide parts in and out of it. The instruments, the scientific instruments, the cameras, they can be replaced. The web, however, 
is not orbiting the Earth. It is orbiting the sun. It's a million miles away. None of it is designed to be fixed. None of it's modular. You Hmm. can't go in and swap out one camera for a new camera. And so it has to work. I mean, this thing has, they calculated 344 potential single-point failures, many of them involving this vast sun shield that they had to deploy. If it doesn't work, they really can't fix it. This has been in the works for a long time. How long has it been? How much does it cost? And like, I imagine that there are hundreds of people here on Earth working on the telescope. Can you talk a little bit about that? So one estimate I heard was that 10,000 people have worked on this telescope. Whoa. (laughs) One of my sources on this, Garth Illingworth, has been working on it since the late 1980s. He was one of the people who said, hey, we need a telescope in space that observes at a different part of the spectrum than the Hubble. In the mid-90s, they began designing it. Funding ramped up in the early 2000s, but it was delayed over and over again. There just wasn't enough money in the budget to bring it to fruition. There were some technical problems and management problems. Um, At one point, Congress thought about killing it. The price tag went from $4 billion to $8 billion, and now we refer to it as a $10 billion project. That is a lot of money for a science mission. At the worst moment, people were deriding this as the telescope that ate astronomy, meaning that it was eating up money that could have gone to other missions and other scientific enterprises. But hovering over everything was the question of, would it work? So we're seeing the culmination of months of sort of like careful maneuvering and for that decades of planning and money and research. Where are we now? What needs to happen next before we can actually start seeing images from this huge, expensive telescope? So we now have a telescope that's out in space a million miles from Earth. Everything is sort of opened up. It has flowered. But now comes what's called the commissioning of the telescope. The main task is to align the mirrors. Each of these 18 mirrors can be maneuvered, and I believe they they move them just one nanometer at a time, I mean, really tiny adjustments to get, you know, a single image. They're going to look at a star. They've picked out a star already. They're going to look at that star with all these mirrors, and probably at first they're going to have what looks like 18, you know, points of light, and they want to make that one point of light. And that process is very delicate. It'll take place over the course of two or three months. They also have to make sure that the the different instruments, they have four major instruments on the observatory. Each of those has to be, you know, calibrated and up and running correctly. The estimate we've, you know, been told is around six months after launch, that'd be uh, late June, we should see the first images from the Webb telescope. That's when science will begin. And if it all goes as planned, this should be operating for many years because the launch was so good and the initial uh, navigational course corrections were so efficient that the telescope has more fuel on board than they thought it might. So it could last uh, not for 10 years as planned, but it could last, I was told, for 20 years or or even longer. Hmm. Wow. I mean, to me, this all sounds fascinating and honestly, like, worth the huge price tag. But I'm just curious. I mean, a project like this is so expensive. As you said, this costs 
$10 billion. Like, it went so far over budget. I have to imagine that there are a lot of people who would say this money would be better spent on something else. And I guess I'm just wondering, how do scientists justify the cost? And I guess, how would you say the cost is justified? The question you're asking could be applied to a lot of science, Hmm. including particularly uh, basic research where you just don't know how it will ever be applied. But to bring it back to the pandemic, a lot of the research that made the vaccines possible began as basic research on viruses and vaccines. And it wasn't immediately clear how it would be useful. In the case of, of astronomy, yeah, a lot of it is just trying to understand our place in the universe you know, what what practical result will come from knowing about how the first stars lit up? I don't know. But I, I can tell you, just based on the emails that I get and the comments that I see on the stories that we write for The Post, that people are interested in their universe. They're interested in what's out there. And the satisfaction of knowing new things is a reward. I don't know what, uh, I'm not sure what, you know, how you put a a dollar value on that. But there's so much bad news out there and, you know, life can be so challenging and difficult. You know, wonder and awe are great curatives for what might be ailing us in any given moment. Joel Achenbach covers health and science for The Post. Emma Talkoff produced this story. After the break, how Amy Schneider saved Jeopardy from itself. We'll be right back. To tint and to perish. Amy. What is to die? Yes. Amy? Was Manning? Peyton Manning, yes. Amy. What is or? You got it. To yield as to an overwhelming force or injury. Amy? What is succumb? That's right. Amy? What are nuclear reactors? Right. Amy? What is uncut? Yes. Amy Schneider has been on TV almost every night for the last two months. She won 40 games of Jeopardy in a row. And on Wednesday, she was finally defeated. Post-entertainment reporter Emily Yar has been watching Schneider throughout her winning streak. She walked away with close to $1.4 million. That is a lot of money. That is a lot of money even in the world of Jeopardy winnings. Schneider now has the second most consecutive wins of any Jeopardy contestant behind Ken Jennings. She is joining the ranks of a few super champions who have dominated the show recently. Just in the past few years, uh, we've had a few super champions, as they're called. Um, James Holzhauer uh, won 32 games in 2019. And then last year, Matt Amodio won 38 games. And these big winning streaks have sparked some theories about why it's much more common to win big on Jeopardy! these days. A lot of these theories are conspiracies, like the questions are getting easier or the competition is rigged. Producers have come out to say that that is not what is going on here. The most likely reason is just because the show has been on for so long and there are so many more resources to study that contestants are just more prepared than ever. And when someone 
can study pretty intensely and they're already a really smart person, um, it just gives them a lot higher of a chance to do really well on the show. Jeopardy! did go through some drama last year. As many people might recall, their newly appointed host very quickly exited the show after reporting uncovered several offensive comments that he'd made on a podcast. And for a show that so many people love for its consistency and for generally being very chill, Amy's reliability felt like maybe it was ushering back the calm Jeopardy! that we all know and love. Her appearance kind of coincided with kind of the end of a lot of chaos for Jeopardy, which is really unusual. Like, usually this is a show that does not have drama. But last year with, you know, them trying to figure out the host and then botching that so publicly, um, yeah, it kind of put the show in a negative spotlight, really for one, maybe the first time. And so when Amy came on, it was just as Ken Jennings was starting to guest host again. And the two of them just had like this really great rapport. And Amy was so smart and so fun to watch. So yeah, it kind of like restored this sense of calm, I think, that the show had really been missing. So many people were rooting for Amy over the course of her 40 games. They were rooting for her because they liked her vibe, because she's clearly so incredibly smart. But there was another thing about Amy that really struck a chord with a lot of people. She's also a transgender woman, which I think is one of the reasons why she has made so many headlines over the last couple of months. Um, She's been vocal about it. She um, wore a transgender flag pin um, during an episode of Jeopardy! around Thanksgiving and said that she was doing so to show support for transgender people that couldn't be uh, with their families or cut off from their families around the holidays. One thing she told me in the interview that um, was really meaningful to her was that she got a lot of messages from transgender people who told her that Um, you know, she helped their parents and grandparents and loved ones kind of understand more what they were going through because they just tuned in and saw her on Jeopardy! every night. Emily Yar is an entertainment reporter for The Post. Ariel Plotnick produced this story. And a big thank you to the folks at Jeopardy! who sent us this great tape that you heard at the top of the story. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Do I have 5G now on my phone? Or do I need to get a new phone to get it? Or What kind of phone do you have? And I'll tell you if you have 5G. Okay. I uh, have an iPhone. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's an iPhone XR. Uh, so you don't have 5G of any kind. Why not? <laughs> you missed the cutoff by just a little bit. Seriously? Like, if I'm not mistaken, I'm tapping into all of my phone nerd power right now. I believe that <laughs> phone was released just before the first AT&T 5G roll huh. happened at, like, the end of 2018. It was honestly by, like, months. But unfortunately, you don't have any wow. kind of 5G. 
I honestly wasn't pressed about it until now. And now I'm like, how dare this? Like, FOMO, how, why right? am I left behind in this like old era of 4G while everyone else gets to enjoy 5G? Well, if it helps, not too many people have been enjoying 5G so far. So I don't think you're missing out on a ton. Chris Velasco works on The Post's help desk. This is a group of tech reporters who help us understand all of the bewildering technology in our lives, like 5G. And to be clear, like this is a problem a lot of people run into. Like 5G is naturally just a really confusing thing. So Chris is helping us out because the other day we did a story on the podcast about 5G and airplanes. That was on Monday's episode, so go check it out if you have not yet listened. And a listener wrote to tell us that when we said that 5G was recently, quote unquote, turned on, that that wasn't quite right. 5G has been around, but what was turned on last week was actually a new frequency band, which, being honest, I don't actually know what a frequency band is. So we got Chris to come in and explain it all to us. So up until now, we've had two kinds of 5G. There's the super flashy, high-frequency 5G called millimeter wave. That's the kind of 5G that'll let you download movies in just a couple of seconds. And on the other end, there's the low-band stuff, which kind of acts a lot like regular 4G, but the benefit is that it reaches much, much further. What AT&T and Verizon did last week was they launched mid-band 5G, which, as the name suggests, kind of like splits the difference between those two things. So you get a much better balance between your download speeds and where you can actually use it. So basically, there was 5G, but it wasn't actually helping that many people or not that many people had access to it up until just recently. Yeah, the benefits for the existing 5G, the 5G that we've had in one form or another since around the end of 2018, was kind of limited. It was either super fast, but you had to be in a specific place to use it, or you had 5G that just kind of felt like the phone service you always had. And that's the kind of stuff you could get everywhere. So now that there is this sort of middle ground that Verizon and AT&T are using, they're able to sort of even out that experience, at least in theory. Okay, so that's Verizon and AT&T. But what about other carriers like T-Mobile? So T-Mobile has had 5G just like these carriers too, and they've had it for a couple of years. And more interestingly, I think, the mid-band 5G that Verizon and AT&T have just launched, T-Mobile has had some version of for a while already. And that's because they sort of swallowed Sprint and got access to all of those juicy mid-band 5G frequencies. So they've had their sort of mid-band 5G up and running with that better balance of speed and reach. They've had a nice little head start. Chris Velasco is a reporter on the help desk. And by the way, he knows way more about this than anybody should. Oh my God. Can I can I go can I go for like 45 minutes about Deutsche Telekom and T-Mobile and voice stream and how all that happened? No, no one, no one wants that. No one needs that. Chris actually did a great video explainer of 5G. So if you, like me, are still feeling a little bit confused, we will put a link to that in our show notes, and you should definitely go check it out. And also a big thank you to our listener, Gary Lerud, who wrote to us about our story and got us digging deeper on what 5G actually is. The segment was produced by Maggie Penman. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Sean Carter and Ted Muldoon. Our executive producer is Maggie Penman. 
Our supervising senior producer is Rena Flores. Our editors are Alexis Diao and Ted Muldoon, who also composed our theme music. Our producers are Lena Muhammad and Jordan Marie Smith. Ariel Plotnik and Wendy Svernovsky are associate producers. Sabi Robinson and Emma Talkoff are assistant producers. Sean Carter is our engineer. The post-director of audio is Renita Jablonski. I'm Martine Powers. I'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. Have a great weekend. Hold up. 